This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Congress has never in its history referred a president, current or former, for criminal prosecution. Until now. As one factor I believe is most important in preventing another January 6th, accountability. So today, beyond our findings, we will also show that evidence we've gathered points to further action beyond the power of this committee or the Congress to help ensure accountability under law. Accountability that can only be found in the criminal justice system. That's Representative Benny Thompson, chair of the January 6th Congressional Committee during the House panel's final hearing on Monday. The committee voted to refer former President Donald Trump to the Department of Justice for four criminal charges related to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The question now is, what will the Justice Department do? In fact, this question has been lingering for months, and it was framed quite nicely back in June by one of our guests, presidential chronicler Chris Whipple. You know, we don't think of ourselves as a banana republic that prosecutes previous regimes, but arguably the only thing worse is to look the other way when you have a president caught red-handed trying to overthrow the democracy with violence. I'm not a headline writer, but if I were working for the New York Daily News, my headline would have been, over to you, Merrick. Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland hasn't said much this week, publicly at least. So instead, let's turn to Paula Reed, senior legal affairs correspondent at CNN, and she joins us from Washington. Paula, welcome back to On Point. Thank you so much. So great to be with you. So have um, your sources in the Justice Department been able to uh, shed even the tiniest bit of daylight to you on uh, what the difference, if any, the criminal referrals from the Congressional Committee are making in the Justice Department? They're largely symbolic. Uh, Special counsel Jack Smith didn't need anyone to tell him that these are some crimes that he can investigate related to the former president, his associates, in January 6th. He's already on it. We don't know specifically which crimes he's looking at, but he has the statute book. We know he's been investigating this. He was appointed to take over this investigation as well as Mar-a-Lago. So again, these are symbolic, and, and there is a downside to this too, right? Because the Justice Department has gone to such lengths to try to convince people that these are apolitical investigations. These are already underway. So you have this committee, while it is bipartisan, the former president's attorneys and some GOP lawmakers argue it's still one-sided. Since they make this referral, the former president's attorneys tell me, you know, now they're going to try to paint this, if there are ever charges brought, as as being political. I mean, one of their defense talking points that they're putting out is, well, if he's ever charged, now we're going to say the Justice Department didn't do anything until this Democratic-led committee told them to, which we know it's more complicated than that. But the Justice Department, again, didn't necessarily need these referrals, and it doesn't help them in this larger political messaging that this is an investigation that is being conducted objectively. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Well, so let's listen back to something that Attorney General Merrick Garland did say in July of this year. He was speaking to NBC's Lester Holt, and Holt asked Garland whether the DOJ would welcome a referral for criminal charges from the committee. And here's what Garland said. So I think this is totally up to the committee. We will have the evidence that the committee has presented and whatever evidence it gives us. I don't think that the nature of how they style, the manner in which information is provided, uh, is is a particular significance from any legal point of view. That's not to downgrade it or or disparage it. It's just that that's not what 
that's not the issue here. We have our own investigation pursuing through the principles of prosecution. So, Paula, um, reflect on that now since we're, we're here in December uh, about what uh, Garland said in July. No, it's a classic Merrick Garland non-answer. Uh, he sort of mastered that, right? He can't say don't send a don't send a referral. He can't say sure we'd welcome it. But what we know is what he we're really they're really after, and, and he kind of says this is the information, the evidence that has been gathered by these lawmakers. It's been a little bit surprising how the the committee's only just now sharing a lot of what it has with the Justice Department. That's been frustrating uh, for the prosecutors, but, I mean, disagreements between Congress and the Justice Department go back centuries. Uh, so it's not terribly surprising overall, but in this particular investigation, they are just now beginning to share with Special Counsel Jack Smith everything that they've uncovered. He, We've learned that he sent a letter, Smith sent a letter to the committee earlier this month asking for all the evidence that they've uncovered and they've begun sharing that. So again, the criminal referral, not necessary, largely symbolic. But what is helpful to prosecutors is this evidence, particularly these transcripts of interviews that have been conducted behind closed doors. Prosecutors are going to be pouring over those for any kind of new information that can help them in their charging decisions. But again, it's not just prosecutors who are interested in that. The former president's attorneys, they're looking over these as well. Their argument is that there has been evidence that has been helpful to their client, that has not been highlighted by the committee, that they think that they can find there to help with any potential defense. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because discovery is discovery for every party um, in any any criminal uh, or even civil proceedings there. So... uh, Let me just uh, have you hang on here for one second, Paula, because I want to bring in Barbara McQuaid into the conversation. She's a professor of law at the University of Michigan, served as U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan from 2015 to 2017, and also for a dozen years was assistant U.S. attorney in Detroit. She is currently co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast as well. Barbara McQuaid, welcome back. Thanks very much, Magna. Glad okay. to be with you. So first of all, just uh, your, your response to what Paul is uh, saying about, you know, practically speaking, or in terms of the law, the committee's um, referral doesn't actually make much of a difference to the Justice Department. Understood, because the committee is a political body. The Justice Department is a legal one. But nevertheless, um, I would also say, though, that the committee has now basically put some shape to what it believes are uh, possible um, uh, possible illegal actions by the former president. And that's important in the mind of the public, is it not, Barb? Absolutely. You know, I think that um, in terms of what the Justice Department is thinking about here when they get a referral like this is, you know, they're already investigating. I'm sure they're very happy to have the benefit of any facts that the committee has gathered, transcripts and documents and the like. But um, they're going to make their own independent decision about whether to file charges here. I think what's different today than existed on Sunday before this executive um, summary came out is it is now apparent to the public just how strong the evidence is and how clear it is that these four statutes were violated. The Justice Department can see the same thing. Um, It just makes it to me more likely that the Justice Department's ultimate decision is going to be to file charges. Okay. Well, so let me lean on your experience as a former U.S. attorney uh, you know, working for the Justice Department. How much does that public perception honestly inform uh, the decisions taken about whether or not to undertake a prosecution? 
Not much. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to say zero, but I'm sure there's, it's, it's probably a non-zero number. Um, you know, when I was prosecuting cases, and I most certainly never had anything of this magnitude, but we did prosecute cases that received a lot of local press coverage, you know, uh, making decisions about whether to uh, charge a, a mayor or some other public official. You would hear a lot of things like, um, how can they be waiting so long? The evidence is so clear. Of course, they should be charged. And you would also hear things like, if they charge, it will be all political and a witch hunt and, and the like. And what we used to tell ourselves is we need to tune out the noise and make a decision based on the facts and the law. When it comes to the sufficiency of the evidence, that's absolutely the case. And there's just no role whatsoever for public sentiment. I will say, though, the reason I say it's a non-zero number is there's a second question prosecutors always ask themselves when bringing a case. And that is not just the can we charge the case, but should we charge the case? And what you have to look at there is whether there is a substantial federal interest in the prosecution, mm. whether there are any collateral damages that could occur as a result of an investigation or a prosecution, and also the likelihood of success, litigation risk. Uh, you should only bring a case if you believe that you are likely to obtain a conviction that you can sustain on appeal. And I think public sentiment makes it a stronger case in terms of that likelihood of success. And so that's why um, I, I think the Justice Department will make mostly an independent assessment. I do think when there's overwhelming public support for a prosecution, it makes it a little easier to say yes. Paula, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, of course. Well, I absolutely defer to, to Barb's expertise on this. And again, it's the information. It's the evidence that is of value from this committee's investigation. And the big question is, of course, Jack Smith, right? He's been working mm -hmm. remotely. Uh, he was injured in a bicycle accident. Our reporting is that he is expected to return uh, to the United States by the first week in January. And there's still a lot of work to do to set up his office. Time is of the essence in this investigation. It's something the attorney general said the day he appointed him. There are concerns about how far into the 2024 campaign cycle this could go. Now, he, his, his office has not been set up. Uh, he's still working with a lot of people who work at the Justice Department, even some pretty senior people who um, have not, again, been transferred officially over to his office. So there's work to be done to officially set up his office. He's expected to work remotely away from Maine Justice, just as Special Counsel Robert Mueller did. And then the hope is he can really move quickly uh, to make some charging decisions in this, the January 6th investigation and the Mar-a-Lago investigation. And they've had some obstacles removed in that. And then here, all this evidence they're getting from the committee question is how long it's going to take to get all this information from the committee. They are, of course, um, really going down to the wire on releasing uh, this report before Republicans take over the committee, excuse me, take over the chamber, and then they're expected to dissolve the committee. Okay, so how, but how quickly does quickly mean in, in this context? As you mentioned, the 2024 election cycle. I would never, ever even attempt to guess at a timeline <laughs> on a Justice okay. Department investigation that's been covering them for a decade, even when you think, oh, they got this dead to rights. I mean, the cases can fall apart. It's almost impossible for me to see. I, I, I will say over the next few months, there is an expectation that some charges in the case, no one's talking about the former president at this point, but there are some other people in this, that the cases look like they're they're pretty strong. And if they are going to charge, they, they, those charges could come in the next few months. Um, of course, we're referring to people like John Eastman, potentially, Jeffrey Clark, potentially. These are the kind of people who really could have legal exposure and for whom the Justice Department, for whom it's, it's easier perhaps to, to build a case based on what we know so far. Mm -hmm. Well, today we are talking about uh, about the decision of the January 6th Congressional Committee to make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice regarding former President Donald Trump. 
and what may happen next. Paula Reed joins us, and so does Barbara McQuaid. And we're already getting some comments here on social media. On Facebook, an on-point listener says, The failure of full accountability for Nixon for Watergate and Reagan Bush for Iran-Contra put us on the road to the current Trump crimes. It's time to bring truth to the claim that no one is above the law. Let us know what you think on Twitter and Facebook. We're at On Point Radio. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the decision of the January 6th Congressional Committee to send criminal referrals to the Department of Justice uh, for former President Donald Trump and others. I'm joined today by Barbara McQuaid. She's a professor of law at the University of Michigan, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Paula Reed is also with us. She's senior legal affairs correspondent for CNN. Let's listen to... um, a second here of Mick Mulvaney, former acting White House chief of staff under former President Donald Trump. He resigned from his post as special envoy to Northern Ireland in the aftermath of the Capitol attack. And he had some interesting thoughts uh, about the committee's decision to make those referrals. He told CNN on Monday that the Trump team should be most frightened by the obstruction charge. You're talking about criminal allegations. So you need really solid evidence. You need proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I just don't think they've got that on inciting to riot and all the things, the sedition, all that. So often in this business, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And if they've got people willing to go under oath and say that Trump or someone on his team offered them benefits or tried to interfere with their testimony, that could be a real problem for him. Mick Mulvaney on Monday on CNN. Now, uh, Paula and Barb, what I'd like to do actually is get a little forensic on the um, referrals that the the committee has made because and I'd love your assistance in understanding basically the difference between the threshold that the committee has versus the threshold that the Department Department of Justice would have. So. Broadly speaking, the referrals are uh, conspiracy to defraud the federal government, obstruction of an official proceeding, in this case the certification of the electoral count, conspiracy to make a false statement, and inciting or inciting or insisting those in an insurrection. So, Barb, of the four, is there one that you think is most likely to sort of meet the threshold of the Department of Justice's ability to um, actually you know, have evidence for? Yeah, I think the first three actually probably meet that threshold. And um, the first one strikes me as the one that would be the easiest to prove, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. So the official proceeding, of course, is the joint session of Congress on January 6th. And to charge Trump and his inner circle with conspiracy, it is not necessary to prove that they were involved in planning the violent attack on the Capitol. It is enough that they did something to thwart its success. And so merely pressuring Mike Pence to refuse to 
count the votes that day is enough. And Trump did that in broad daylight. He did it on Twitter. He did it on the ellipse. And we have witnesses saying he also did it privately. So to me, that one is very strong. I think that there's really not much standard for the congressional committee. You know, um, we used to get referrals all the time from members of Congress who wanted us to look into something. And it might be based on just, you know, one allegation by a constituent. That would be enough, perhaps, for us to begin an investigation. But to file charges, the Justice Department's manual says that the prosecution, um, the, the prosecutors must believe uh, that the evidence is sufficient uh, to obtain and sustain a conviction. That means they believe they've got sufficient evidence to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's a much higher standard before they would file charges. Okay. But for for the um, the obstruction of an official proceeding um, or conspiracy to make false statement um, referrals, doesn't the Justice Department run into an immediate problem with the the First Amendment? Because I'm already seeing some analysis saying, well, uh, Donald Trump could very plainly um, state that he, he was doing nothing but protected political speech. Yes. And that's why I think that sometimes when we uh, see a lot of impatience for why charges haven't been filed yet, I think there is sometimes a failure to appreciate the potential defenses on the other side that the Justice Department has to analyze legally and also button down factually. So if there's some alibi witness who's going to come out and say something or if there's going to be someone who says, we assured Donald Trump that this was all legal and that he could do this uh, and that the election was stolen, um, you need to know about that. And so interviewing everybody who may have been involved is critically important to that. Um, But that First Amendment defense is why I say three of the four, I think, are strong charges. The fourth, I think, is not as strong, although um, not necessarily uh, impossible to prove. That's the one about inciting insurrection. I, before Monday, I had thought this was a bridge too far because the mm. speech he gave on the ellipse, although certainly instigated the crowd, um, was vague enough and tossed in the word peacefully, such that I thought it was unlikely to surpass the test the Supreme Court has put in a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio, where the court said that to criminalize speech, um, the government must prove that the defendant intended to incite imminent lawless action and that the statements were likely to produce that result. I I thought the speech was just too vague and wasn't going to get there, even though that may very well have been Uh, you know, in your gut, what you think was happening there. But the brilliance of the memo is not only do they look at the speech, they look at the tweet that Donald Trump sent at 2.24 p.m., which is now long after the Capitol has been under attack. And Donald Trump is in the White House watching all of this violence unfold on television. And yet an hour and a half in, he tweets words to the effect of, um, Mike Pence lacked the courage to do what he needed to do. The United States demands the truth. And we know that that kind of poured fuel on the fire and they started chanting, hang Mike Pence. So that one, I think, actually might be able to overcome that very high bar that's been set by the Supreme Court regarding free speech when it's also political speech. Huh. Paula, what do you think? Well, I know from our reporting, uh, for example, it, when it comes to the defense, Right. What defense would they put on if these charges were to be brought? I mean, one of the key points that the former president's attorneys make is that they would try to argue that he had a, an honestly held belief that there was election fraud. And it's interesting because the committee used their hearing uh, earlier this week on Monday to specifically address that. I mean, they put up several very uh, close people uh, to the former president, including Hope Hicks, Kellyanne Conway, and really established that he was being told, in fact, that there 
there was no election fraud. The big lie was, in fact, itself a lie. So it's interesting that they were specifically addressing that defense. But the bar is so much higher, as Barb has laid out, for the Justice Department than it is for this committee to come out and, and throw these charges up, you know, on a slide or, or a PowerPoint or in a referral. The bar is very high here. Not only do you have First Amendment concerns, um, you have some of these you know, other points that the former president's lawyers will make. It's also a question of, you know, is there a, a political appetite to try a case that is not as, as strong? When you also have this parallel investigation into the possible mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, which even the former president's lawyers will tell you is a bigger threat and a stronger case. So it's a complicated analysis for the Justice Department, but it was interesting to see the committee try to rebut some of these potential defenses uh, in their public hearing Monday. Okay. But so so both of you help me understand, again, you know, I'm, I'm approaching this from the from the perspective of just the, the lay public trying to like wrap my mind around um uh different thresholds and therefore possibilities I, I'm just I'm a little confused Barb so clarify for me that um you, you think that the the his tweet was enough to um, convince you that there's maybe justification for uh the obstruction charge did I hear that right um no the incitement oh, the, charge the, the incitement fourth, charge the fourth okay. one. Okay. Yeah, I still think it's a it's a touchy one. I don't know whether the DOJ will go forward, but I had previously thought it was a total non-starter just based on the speech. But now I think it's it needs to get serious consideration. Okay, and if I if I remember correctly, the incitement charge, if found guilty, if the charge is made and Trump would be found guilty of it, that's the only one that would prevent him running for office again. Yes. Well, you know, there had been some talk, perhaps they could prove seditious conspiracy. That could be another one. But the committee did not recommend it. And we have yet to see that link between Trump and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers planning in advance the physical attack. So in the absence of that one, inciting insurrection, you know, I think the 14th Amendment says something like um, insurrection or rebellion uh, bars someone from holding office in the future. So you're right. There's a lot of consequence that could come with that insurrection charge. Um, it's still a little unclear whether that language in the 14th Amendment withstands constitutional muster in light of other provisions in the Constitution and the vagueness of the language itself, which does not provide any mechanism or process for barring someone from office. Okay. So here's a question that maybe comes a little bit out of left field, but um, I'm just relying on the expertise of both of you. Uh, I'm hearing repeatedly, and we have been for some time, that Rightfully so, the Department of Justice has a high threshold it has to meet, right? Because criminal prosecutions have to prove, you know, successful ones have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. But, you know, I also wonder, um, is there is there any part of the law here that addresses what seems to have been laid out very clearly by the committee vis-a-vis Trump's negligence in his duty as president of the United States? Because you know, I'm thinking like, say, in, in other parts of the law, a, comp- a company or even individuals can be found negligent for not doing something to protect their customers or or protect others. Is there any parallel to that in terms of the presidency of the United States, Barb? There is. This is a, a, a little bit of a, of a stretch of a theory, I think. But um, the, you have to have a statute that says uh, says so. You can't just sort of uh, charge someone for doing something wrong. You need a statute. There is, however, a statute on the books. I don't know that the Justice Department would want to use it, but um, it's the federal manslaughter statute, which says if someone is killed in an unintentional killing, 
um, based on recklessness, uh, then someone can be held accountable. And so the theory would go like this. Um, when Trump made his comments, when Trump refused to do anything for 187 minutes, as he watched all of this violence unfolding on television before him, when he refused to call up the National Guard, despite being urged to do so, he was reckless and derelict in his duty as president to, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Um, and death was a foreseeable consequence of that, even an unintentional death. And so, um, you know, people, there, there was a, a woman who was trampled to death. We know Ashley Babbitt was shot. We had people who suffered medical issues that uh, the medics could not reach who died um, there on the Capitol, police officers. Um, and so I, I think that's a possibility. I, again, in light of the fact that there are perhaps other stronger offenses that focus on affirmative acts. Mm -hmm. I'd be surprised if the Justice Department went there. Um, but it, it certainly is a viable legal claim. Mm. Yeah, because I think it's what I'm struggling with is um, is the law versus um, our our perception of what happened as citizens. Right. Because I like it, it's the when we say I have been saying now since January 6th of 2021, uh, me, uh, me amongst many. This was attack, an attack against our democracy, right? But that's not anything that the Justice Department can bring charges against, except maybe in the, the obstruction of an official proceeding charge, Paula. Well, they have brought cases, they have hundreds of cases against people who were actually at the Capitol, people who engaged in the violence that day. And they, they've actually been more successful than maybe even they they expected. And some of those, for example, um, being able to get a conviction uh, on seditious conspiracy. Mm -hmm. so, so they are pursuing these at the individual level. But then to take this sort of the 30,000 foot view and say, you know, what could the should have could have the former president done at that time? That's a very different type of case to bring. And again, to be able to prove beyond reasonable doubt uh, to what would be, I believe, a D.C. jury, um, that the former president failed in his duty during those 187 minutes or because he tweeted something, he incited violence. I mean, that feels like an uphill battle for prosecutors to successfully bring that case. And again, what complicates this is it's not the only investigation, it's not the only case they're contemplating bringing against the former president. You have what is arguably a stronger case uh, brewing in Mar-a-Lago, unclear if charges will be brought in either. But again, it just it feels like a, a real uphill climb for prosecutors to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, even if it seems possible, even if it seems something like something that, yeah, that seems right, that feels right. When you go up against the former president of the United States, the political ramifications of something like that, given how unsuccessful the Justice Department has been over particularly the past 15 years going after public figures, mm. um, how many issues they've had, how many failures they've had, you need the strongest case possible. And I'm not sure that's it. Okay. So so I'm really glad you brought this up because that's an excellent point about the the other prosecutions that the Justice Department has undertaken for people who are actually you know, physically at the Capitol. Um and you mentioned that maybe the DOJ itself was quite surprised by how successful they've been. Can well, we... seditious conspiracy. Yeah, the yeah. attorney general was reluctant to bring that. They were like, I don't know. This is not used very often. Can we prove that? And they wound up being successful. So can you glean any um, any conclusions about whether that might uh, encourage the Justice Department or, or what impact that might have on the DOJ's decision of whether or not to bring charges against Trump? Or um, we haven't even talked about any of the other people, most notably um, uh, John Eastman, that the committee's sure, yeah. also mentioned. 
So I think it's very different when you have someone like a, you know, one of the people at the, the Capitol and you have video of them. You can see what they're doing. You have almost these guys were text messaging, right, their plans ahead of time to lay out your case in that way. There's a lot of social media trails. There, there's just so much evidence of what was physically happening at that time, the violence that was was actually carried out or um, planned ahead of time in some of the other cases. With someone like John Eastman, what makes him and some of the people who are physically on the Capitol different than the former president is that, again, with John Eastman, you have a paper trail. For example, you have these memos that he laid out his plan of how the former vice president, Mike Pence, could try to overturn the election results. His name is on these mm -hmm. memos, even, even though he wouldn't he wouldn't admit it to the committee uh, in his transcript, which is all last night. But um, yeah, that's a very different case. You have this physical evidence. You have uh, evidence that you can present. You signed this memo. You said this. With the former president, yes, you have tweets. You have things that people told him. But one of the things that this man has always been very good at is not leaving a paper trail, not emailing, not text messaging. So you don't have that same evidence, like you have all the video evidence, the text evidence for the violence on the Hill with John Eastman and potentially charges against him. Again, the case is stronger because of all the physical evidence. I mean, he literally wrote the plan out and signed it. Uh, it's That's what makes it different and why we think it's more likely that someone like John Eastman could potentially be charged, whereas bringing a case against the former president is tricky for a lot of reasons that Robert Mueller ran up against. And they've also run up against, of course, in New York and other criminal investigations into Mr. Yeah. Trump. Yeah. Uh, Barb McQuaid, we've got about a minute before our next break here. Your thoughts on uh, Eastman and others? Oh, I think charging some of those others is very a very real possibility, um, in part because this is how criminal organizations uh, get dismantled. Uh, you start with a lower level person where you've just got them dead to rights. Uh, you prosecute them and you offer them an opportunity to testify against more egregious offenders. So, I mean, Jeffrey Clark is another one that comes to mind, uh, working at the Justice Department and pushing to send these letters out to the states, suggesting they convene their legislatures for the purpose of selecting alternate slates of electors. Uh, wow. I mean, that's just uh, jaw-dropping stuff. And so, you know, someone like him, they, we also know that uh, just the Justice Department sees the phones of Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman and are likely extracting encrypted text messages that can be a real treasure trove of evidence. And so I think those two are in particularly hot water. And um, if I were prosecuting this case, I would most certainly be exploring cooperation for both of them because they had close face-to-face -face meetings with Donald Trump. Well, Barbara McQuaid is with us today. She's a law professor at the University of Michigan. Paula Reed also joins us. She's senior legal affairs correspondent at CNN. And we are talking about the uh, decision of the January 6th committee, congressional committee earlier this week to make criminal referrals uh, regarding former President Trump and others to the Justice Department. And what might happen next? We'll have more. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some 
middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. And just a little heads up on a show that we're going to bring to you in the new year. On Point's money ladies are going to be back with us. That's uh, Financial Financial Times business columnist Rana Faruhar and The Washington Post's Michelle Singletary, belovedly known as our money ladies. So we're going to talk about uh, what the new year might bring to you financially, both at the micro and macro level, and how to prepare for 2023. So we want to hear from you. What what are your money questions for Rana and Michelle, whether it's your personal finance questions or questions about the broader national and global economy? Give us a call. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. 617-353-0683. Or better yet, you can send us a message through our OnPoint Vox Pop app. And if you don't already have it on your phone, just search for OnPoint Vox Pop wherever you get your app. So that's for early in 2023. Today we are talking about the January 6th Congressional Committee's decision to send for criminal referrals uh, regard, uh, regarding former President Donald Trump and others vis-a-vis the attack on Congress uh, in January 2021. I'm joined today by Paula Reed. She's senior legal affairs correspondent at CNN. And Barbara McQuaid is with us as well, law professor at the University of Michigan, co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast and a former U.S. attorney herself. Now, let's just listen briefly to what former Vice President Mike Pence had to say uh, about the committee's decision. Uh, Pence obviously is playing a central role on the 6th of January when he decided to uh, protect the electoral process. He told Fox News, though, that he thinks the DOJ should not bring charges against the former president. I would hope that they would not bring charges against the former president. I, I don't look, I, as I wrote in my book, I think the president's actions and words on January 6th were reckless. Um, but I don't know that it's criminal. it's criminal to Got take it. bad advice from lawyers. Former Vice President Mike Pence there on Monday. Well, a very, very different perspective came from the committee vice chair herself. Here's Liz Cheney, congresswoman from Wyoming, during Monday's hearing. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. Well, let's bring in Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Megna. Now, that statement from uh, Representative Cheney has really stuck with you. Tell me why. Well, because it lights up uh, character. Uh, and that is a dimension of Trump and Trumpism that we in the media have neglected. Uh I want to quote a sentence from Thomas Edsel of the New York Times. He lays out a sort of geology of Mr. Trump's unfitness. It's a soma, it's a coda, really, uh, to, the, uh, to the committee's report. Edsel writes, how in less than a decade could this once proud country have evolved to the point that there is a serious debate over choosing a presidential candidate who is a lifelong opportunist, a pathological and malignant narcissist, 
a sociopath, a serial liar, a philanderer, a tax cheat who does not pay his bills, and a man who socializes with Holocaust deniers, who has pardoned his criminal allies, who encouraged a violent insurrection, and who continually undermines the American democracy. How could a man so unfit for any office aspire to occupy the highest office in the land again? And again, I think that the combination in that indictment, that's another indictment, of psychological and moral goes to a neglected part of our, of our sort of discussion about what makes a, a candidate uh, viable, presentable as a, as a presidential possibility. This was brought home to me listening to Steve Inskeep this week. He interviewed uh, Mike Pence. And he noticed that Mike Pence in 2016 at the convention said, Donald Trump is a good man. Uh, Steve Inskeep says, is Donald Trump a good man? To his credit, Vice President Pence did not say, yes, he is a good man. But that's the vocabulary, I think, that is missing in political discussion about what it is that makes people qualified to be president. We're, chair, we're, we're leery of talking about the moral, the psychological, but these are the things that, that determine what people do. Mm. So, Jack, help me understand, um, uh, why do you think it's important to, to sort of uh, examine this closely now? Well, I, I, I think it's a, it's a sort of a look ahead. Trump is a cautionary tale. He got to where he was partly because I think those of us in the media didn't do enough due diligence on his character, did not expose it sufficiently. Uh, you know, Michelle Obama has said that the presidency doesn't change who you are, it reveals who you are. And I don't think we adequately went into who he who he is and was, we need to do better. Uh, and I think Trump stands for that, uh, uh, that idea. Interestingly, Trump's comment on the committee's report was, they are thugs and scoundrels. Winston Churchill had a retort to that. He said, never does a man portray his character more vividly than one proclaiming the character of another. Hmm. Well, Paula, let me turn to you first on that, on, on Jack, what Jack's offering here, because you also spent a considerable amount of time reporting from the White House uh, and were very frequently the target of um, former President Trump's ire. So what do you think about what Jack said? Well, I, I would challenge the notion that we did not illuminate his character prior to him being elected president. I mean, he did it himself. He lived an extremely public life. It was well known, for example, his personal issues, you know, the philandering, business issues, tax issues. And even throughout the campaign, he would he would sort of really uh, say things that were either racially insensitive or outright racist, something that he continued to do uh, during his presidency. And he clearly had a problem with the truth. That was well documented before he was elected, but he got elected because there were enough voters out there who said, look, in spite of his character, I will still vote for him because I believe he can deliver on immigration reform, China, manufacturing, whatever it was. But what we saw throughout the course of his presidency is that he failed to deliver on those promises, particularly when it came to the pandemic. Uh, he just failed to lead. He was too caught up in himself, in ego, 
in controlling things and failed to successfully lead the country. That's why he wasn't reelected. And that's why you see even his own party right now really struggling with the idea of him running again. They appear to prefer someone who will take the same platform that was successful, but be, again, a different character. That seems to be what they hope. Mike Pence and others in the party would be a more successful strategy for beating Biden coming up. Mm. And Barb, your thoughts? Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, the, the famous quote came to mind when I heard what Mike Pence said. That's something, you know, the, the, the phrase that goes along the lines, the only thing that's necessary for evil to triumph over, uh, over good is for good men to do nothing. I, I think this idea of minimizing what Trump did and saying he shouldn't be prosecuted for, and this is a bit of disinformation, uh, relying on bad legal advice. Like, that's not what Trump did. He didn't just rely on bad legal advice. I mean, he, you know, he, he stoked the crowd. He stirred them up. He said, stop the steal. It's a rigged election on the basis of no facts whatsoever. You know, he agitated for violence. The idea to minimize that as, you know, relying on some bad legal advice is a, a, a real distortion of the truth. And I think Mike Pence is putting his own political future ahead of the national interest. Uh, he doesn't want to curry disfavor with Trump and become, you know, the victim uh, and target of his posts on Truth Social and get a nasty nickname and maybe alienate some uh, members of uh, the mega Republican wing. And so he says something that's very self-serving. I think to the contrary, accountability is incredibly important. And I think criminal prosecution is less about looking at the past and punishing people for their misdeeds and more about looking toward the future and deterring other people from engaging in similar conduct. Wait, say that again? Because to me, I, I, my, I had the presumption that a criminal prosecution was exclusively for the punishment of past misdeeds. There are a number of reasons that we prosecute people. One of them is for punishment. But in my, my view, it has always been when I am making a charging decision, what effect is this going to have on public safety in the future? Will this deter other people from engaging in similar conduct? If you don't charge crimes, people who might be likely to commit those crimes will feel emboldened that this is not a big deal. Everybody does it and you get away with it. And if you prosecute those people, it sends a message that society condemns this behavior. And if you engage in it, you'll be prosecuted as well. It's like that listener's comment about how uh, Watergate, Iran-Contra, uh, and our, our, our failure to hold any of those people accountable has really laid the groundwork for Donald Trump. Hmm. Okay, so Jack, let me circle back to you here because Paula said um, something which I think is quite right, and I'd love to hear your response from it, that, that there was ample evidence from, from voters and um, you know, f lawmakers in Washington who said that uh, regarding the question of Trump's character, yeah, it might have been, you know, in their eyes, distasteful, but it didn't matter. They were going to vote for him anyway or support him anyway. So let's just hypothesize for a moment that the kind of uh, media coverage that you're saying was lacking uh, was actually there instead, and there was lots of uh, uh, extensive examination of his character. I'm not sure it would have made any difference, Jack. Perhaps not. Uh, you know, it brings to mind uh, FDR's comment on, this, on President Somoza of Nicaragua. Uh, someone said, he's an SOB, and FDR said, yes, but he's our SOB. Uh, and that seemed to be, that, that could well be the, the attitude that many people had. All I'm suggesting is that in addition to quoting from reporters when they quote from economists and arms control experts and so on, they ought to talk to moral philosophers. They ought to talk to psychologists. They ought to talk to novelists. They ought to talk to people whose 
whose ambit is bigger than, uh, you know, uh, issues of throw weight or, uh, you know, the missile triad, the nuclear triad, something that goes to what really matters with people, uh, their their predispositions, their character, the the sort of path dependency uh, of their lives and how that how that governs what they do in office. And I think Liz Cheney is right. His, the report, what it shows, is, his, is Mr. Trump's flagrant unfitness. And I am not satisfied that we in the press brought that out to the degree that your hypothesis uh, uh, could be valid. Mm, Okay. Well, uh, let's just take a moment to hear from some um, other responses from uh, Republican lawmakers uh, this week. This is Ohio Republican uh, Jim Jordan uh, saying that uh, he believes the the January 6th committee uh, really isn't legitimate and and only had um, uh, one goal in mind from the start. It's always been about stopping President Trump because they don't want someone who's going to come to the town and shake up the place and take on the establishment and take on the swamp and whatever term you want to use, because that's what he did. Uh, And he did it with every Democrat against him, everyone in the press against him, uh, half the Republicans against him, all the bureaucracy against him. And this 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 partisan committee created by nine people who were out to get him. Okay, so that's uh, Ohio Republican Jim Jordan. Uh, On the other hand, we have uh, a very interesting question from a non-point listener who says, how on earth is it possible that it took this long, almost a year, to uh, come up with these criminal referrals for Trump when his incitements happened live on national TV? Barbara McQuaid, do you have an answer for that? Well, I, I do share the view that it does seem like it's been a little bit slow. But I will also say that to put together a criminal prosecution takes a, a great deal of time longer than just, you know, assembling a good story that you can share with the public. You know, even what the committee did is not going to be enough for a prosecution because they told a good story. They put on some witnesses. They did not address any potential defense defenses. They did not subject their witnesses to cross-examination. They did not submit um facts under the rules of evidence. They used hearsay and other things that would be inadmissible in court. And so showing up the evidence in such a way that it can be used in court is a very different proposition from simply telling a good story. And so, uh, but but to the listener's point, I, I will say that, you know, the, the Justice Department got uh, underway on the you know 900 or so cases they were able to build for the people who were physically at the tech at the attack right away but it it seemed like at least from the outside that they really didn't begin looking at the higher levels until very late in the game and although building a case from the bottom up can provide you with helpful cooperators you don't need to wait to get started for that i mean everybody could see in broad daylight that Trump and part of his inner circle uh, was involved in uh, some very um, alarming activity and potentially criminal activity. And so if they waited until, uh, you know, a year in, uh, I think that was a mistake because now they're running up against a clock in mm-hmm. the other direction um, with, you know, there's going to be an election in 2024. So they need to get this case charged, I think, in the early part of 2023 to have enough time to complete it before that election is over. And that's just around the corner, the early part of 2023. Listen, we just have a a tiny bit of time left, so I'm going to give Paula, you and Jack each about 30 seconds to share a last thought. Paula, you go first. 
Uh, you know, I'm still skeptical about whether there will be any charges brought against the former president on January 6th. Uh, it's, a, it's a real uphill climb uh, to bring a case like this. Once again, we're, we're contemplating constitutional questions that have never been contemplated before vis-a-vis -a, -vis a, former, a former president. I am skeptical about whether they will actually charge him on January 6th. Mar-a-Lago, different question. Mm -hmm. But we'll, we'll see. I do expect some of his associates, though, will be charged in the coming months. And Jack, last thought goes to you today. Well, apropos of Barbara's comment, uh, the committee says about Mark Meadows that the Justice Department has refused to prosecute him for criminal content. And then there's this piece of sarcasm. The reason for Justice's refusal to do so are not apparent to the committee. A, a, a hint there of what Barbara was saying, that they've been slow to get to the higher ups. Well, Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, thank you as always for joining us today, Jack. Thank you. And Paula Reed, Senior Legal Affairs Correspondent at CNN. Paula, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Barbara McQuaid, law professor at the University of Michigan, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and also co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Barbara McQuaid, it's great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meghna. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.